Well, we are back to study uh, Romans with St. John Chrysostom through Reed helping us walk through this. We are in Romans 14, uh, so that means we have two more classes left in this series. Um, so we'll go ahead and start with prayer, and then we'll get into the text and hear what St. John Chrysostom has to say uh, about what Paul has to say. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and upon those in the tombs, bestowing life. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and upon those in the tombs, bestowing life. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and upon those in the tombs, bestowing life. Amen. Amen. Reed, take it away. <laughs> okay. Well, good evening. Um, we are in Romans chapter 14 tonight. And... Um, this is an interesting chapter, um, and um, what I have wanted to do after reading it through and reading what St. John has to say about it is I would like to give sort of a summary, a background of how St. John Chrysostom understands what the Apostle Paul is up to in this chapter. And it does break up very much as, as a coherent part. Um, the, the, the chapter divisions are not completely unrelated to the flow of thought here. So um, I, I wrote up some notes, not too long, that sort of summarizes how St. John understands what the apostle is up to in this chapter. So I'm just going to read those to you if I may. So in this chapter, the Apostle Paul is addressing two groups of Christians in the Church of Rome. The first group, called the Stronger Brethren, includes both the Gentile believers and the Jewish believers who had come to understand that it was no longer necessary or desirable to observe the law of Moses. The second group, referred to as the Weaker Brethren, includes Jewish believers whose consciences still compelled them to observe the law of Moses. Hmm. Members of the weaker group did not want to eat pork, but to disguise their observance of this aspect of the law, they abstained from all meat, giving the appearance that they were keeping a permanent fast rather than keeping the law. Now, the stronger brethren were the ones who were right about this matter. The, weak, the weaker brethren were wrong about it. And if you uh, look in uh, St. Paul's letter to the Colossians, he writes very forcibly on this matter, saying, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. And he says, So let, let no one judge you in food or in drink. And he says, Let no one cheat you of your reward. And these are all from Colossians chapter 2. Similarly, similarly, the apostle is strict on this matter in writing to the Galatians. Thus, it was desirable that the weaker brethren should mature in the faith and give up their observance of the law. It was even proper that the stronger brethren should teach and encourage the weaker brethren to this end. The apostle Paul, however, as a good shepherd of the flock, sees two opposite dangers to the Roman church in dealing with this matter of observing the law by abstaining from meat. The first is that the weaker believers would never give up observing the law 
and would be trusting in it rather than in Christ. And perhaps secondarily, that they would judge the stronger believers for their neglect of the law. The second opposite danger is that the stronger believers would rebuke the weaker too strongly or would compel them to eat meat, I guess pork in particular, contrary to their own consciences. So because, uh, because this understanding of the need to abandon the law in favor of Christ was still new to the Roman believers, the weaker brethren were not ready to face such a rebuke or such compulsion from their stronger brethren. It was the right instruction, but the wrong time to give it. And the result would have been driving the weaker brethren into discouragement or schism or into abandoning Christ altogether. Thus, the apostle is at pains to avoid giving either group his stamp of approval in such a way as to embolden them to press their view on the others, since the church would suffer harm regardless of which group felt affirmed. Rather, in his pastoral wisdom, St. Paul takes the rhetorical tack of giving correction primarily to the stronger brethren, but doing it in such a way that it shows the failings of the weaker brethren and calls them to improvement. Did that make sense? Yeah. Oh, yes. So I guess this emphasizes again what we've said so often that St. John, as a pastor, reads the Apostle Paul as a pastor and sees this not as a doctrinal manual, but very carefully crafted pastoral counsel to keep the church in Rome from harm. One side is right and one side is wrong, but he doesn't want to say that very plainly to either of them because harm will result. Instead, he's going to direct corrections to the stronger brethren for the most part, but more it's kind of to put a check on their right desires because they're untimely and in the process to be kind of making points striking a blow at the weaker brethren to correct them but because the corrections aren't aimed at them they're not likely to feel attacked and i'm sure that saint john great rhetorician that he was understood perfectly well that this was a very useful way of instructing people was by seeming to talk to someone else I seem to recall once having heard um, missionaries, maybe Bible translators, who are trying to work on a, a difficult passage. And as they were working with one of the uh, natives of the people they were working with, they were reading a passage of the Bible and plainly this man was hearing what it meant in a way that was not right and not good, but he wouldn't say it. And so, they finally said to the man, well, look, if I read this to that guy over there, what would he think it was saying? So the, the man who was working with him didn't have to confess his own views, which seemed kind of repugnant to him. He could say, oh, well, that guy over there, what he would think was going on was, and that way he was able, they were able to find out 
what the members of this group would have understood this Bible passage to mean. And it was something completely repugnant to the meaning of the story and of the gospel. And so they were then able to get onto a correct translation by uh, that little rhetorical device. Anyway, any comments or questions so far? Nope. Okay. Nope. <laughs> and if that summary is at all amiss, I take full responsibility for it. Nope. Okay. It was spot so, on. Um, would someone be so kind as to read for us the first? Uh, oh, let's do it all together. First 13 verses of chapter 14. We're going to all read at the same time. What's that? You said we'll all read it together. Oh, sorry. <laughs> would, <laughs> would one of you be so kind as to read it for all of us? <laughs> Lewis, do you want to do it or do you want me to do it? I'd like for you to do it, Father Daniel. All right, here we go. Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. For none of us lives to himself and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. Thank you, Father. Now, it's interesting reading this you know, and thinking how I've read it for so many years before becoming Orthodox as an evangelical. And there seems to be a great deal of parallelism in the structure here, right? You know, one believes he may eat all things, but you know, the other one eats only vegetables. Let him not despise him and let him not judge him. You know, one, one person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced. He observed, you know, it all feels like, well, this or that, A or B. This. And what St. John does as he reads through this is says, essentially says, it feels like that because this is Paul's rhetorical device. Oh, yeah, I'm talking to both of you. But there are little inequalities of expression here that reveal what the apostle is really up to. Um, and so, you know, these li just little things that I would look at and think, okay, yeah, that's a still parallel. St. John sees this. No, no, 
this indicates very much the way that this is not parallel. So for instance, um, in uh, starting at verse one, so it's, first of all, he says, receive one who is weak. And who, whom is this directed to? Who has to receive the weaker brother? Well, the more mature. Uh... Yeah, the stronger, right? So he doesn't say, you who are stronger. He just says, receive one who is weak. Okay. So without calling them stronger, he started addressing him. And, but what does he do? First of all, he refers to the one as weak, which plainly puts him in a, in a position that is not so favorable. And, and perhaps this is in the Greek, but this word receive indicates, St. John says, someone who needs extra attention. And he in fact emphasizes that, well, the weaker brother always requires extra care and consideration. And this is kind of a theme throughout here. If someone's weaker, that doesn't mean, you know, straighten them out and make him be strong. It means, no, no, take extra time and be gentle with him. And thirdly, this phrase that's a little, uh, evidently a little hard to translate clearly in the New King James, it says disputes over doubtful things. Um, in St. John's translation, it says doubtful disputations. Um, but the way St. John understands that, that this phrasing seems to suggest that even those who, who would receive such a weak man, even though they don't share in his transgression, that is observing the law regarding food, just by receiving that man, you've sort of placed yourself in a doubtful position. So just in that one sentence, there are at least three points made toward the weaker brothers that they're in a bad position, even though this is a correction directed at the stronger. So again, uh, in verse two, we see something very similar. For one believes, just one, happens to believe he may eat all things but another no he doesn't say another he says but he who is weak eats only vegetables verse three let not him who eats despise him who does not eat now you notice what he doesn't say here he doesn't say the stronger is not to engage the weaker on this point or to tell him that it's wrong or to try to set him right. But he does forbid him to reproach him harshly, to despise him as though he's someone with little faith or is falsely healed or a spurious disciple or a Judaizer, even though his actual practice is pretty ridiculous. And he goes on then, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. And he says, the weaker is not to judge the stronger. Why would the weaker judge the stronger? Well, maybe because he's not observing the law. He's a lawbreaker or he's eating all this meat. Maybe he's a glutton. And so the weaker is not to bring these charges against the stronger. And St. John says, now actually there's something peculiar here. The normal way of expressing this would have been to despise the stronger for gluttony and to judge the weaker for lack of faith. 
But St. Paul has reversed the two. He's, he's put the charges against the wrong people, if you will. Um, instead of despising the gluttons, they're being judged. And instead of judging the ones who are lacking faith, they're being despised. And what St. John sees in this is that the apostle here is showing by this um, that, in fact, the ones who are stronger, far from being despicable, are, in fact, in a position justly to despise the weaker. And that's why he has to tell them not to do it. You know, essentially, even though it would sort of be appropriate to despise them, don't do that. And you notice he offers a defense, but only to one of the groups. He closes, for God has received him. Now, whom has God received? The one who eats, the one who has left the law behind. And he says, the, the point of this is to say to the weaker, not to charge the stronger with transgressing the law, for God has received him, which affirms the unspeakably great grace that this stronger one has received. So far, so good? Yes. So, verse four, who are you to judge another servant? And uh, St. John sees the apostle as, a direct, as directing this once again, to the stronger brother, you know, even though a minute ago he was telling them don't despise, now he's saying now also don't judge. Okay. He says don't judge your weaker brother, your who's also your fellow servant. And this indicates first of all they did have some indication to judge them. But once again, his target in saying this is the weaker, because Saint Paul doesn't say. Don't judge him because he's not doing anything worthy of judgment. He's not saying that would be an unjust or an inaccurate judgment. Just this is not your judgment to make. Someone else is going to do that. His master will do that. Okay. It's not that you would be wrong. It's just not your place. And also, and again, maybe knowing the Greek would help, when he says of the weaker brother, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. He says, this is the phrasing that you would use speaking of someone who is wavering, someone whom you're in great danger, he's not going to stand. Um, you're, you're very fearful. You have great doubts that he really will stand. And so once again, this emphasizes that the weaker brother is in fact in a precarious position. And here he also says, it is the master who will suffer gain or loss according to whether his servant stands or falls. And this is something St. John's going to, uh, yeah, St. John's going to elaborate on farther down, is the one who suffers the greatest loss or the greatest gain according to whether the servant stands or falls is not even the servant, it is the master, it is the Lord. So he says to the stronger, now look, it's the master who's going to suffer the gain or loss if his servant stands or falls, and the master hasn't rebuked him yet. So if he hasn't rebuked him, then for you to rebuke him plainly is not at the right time. This would be the wrong time to do it, and it would be out of proportion to what his need is.
So that finishes the first little section there. And I'll keep marching on, but jump in if you have anything you'd like to add or correct. Um, verse 5, one person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced. And um, <clears throat> St. John <clears throat> says that it appears to him this is talking largely about fasting. Where some men were fixing on uh, were fasting on fixed days, um, and and of course we know that the that the Jews did this, and also like the the Didache talks about which days of the week you're supposed to fast on. So that idea was certainly around. So some men were fasting on fixed days, and others were fasting not on any particular schedule, and some men were keeping fasts, and some weren't fasting at all. And the ones who were fasting evidently were sometimes judging those who didn't. And says, now St. Paul is showing that this is all a matter of indifference. <laughs> What's that? Oh, sorry. Um, but not utter indifference, but just it's a matter of relative indifference at the present time. This is not, it's not desirable to make trouble about these matters at the present time. We see again in Colossians and Galatians that the Apostle Paul addresses these matters very definitely, very firmly, um, again in Colossians and Galatians. But right now, it can be treated as a matter of indifference. It's not the more important matter. And he also talks about this. Um, clause or sentence, let each be fully convinced in his own mind. And he says, now it's important to understand that's a comment only, addressed to, only addressing the current subject, right? So he, he's saying this is only about the matter at hand, eating meats. Because he says, now when the apostle talks about doctrine, he doesn't say let everyone be convinced you know, in his own mind, he says, no, do not dare to depart, depart from the faith that you have received. So, for instance, in Galatians 1, 9, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. Mm. So, um, you know, this whole matter of understanding the purpose and the scope and the context of the, the Bible passage shows up again and again and again in St. John's homilies. And it's, I find it very instructive, again, especially in sort of trying to read a wiser way, learn a wiser way of reading scripture than I practiced in my evangelical days. So going on, verse six, he observes the day, observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, and so on. And he says, now, this matter is not a fundamental of the faith. Um, and, and that word fundament, fundamental is actually one that showed up in, you know, in the translation I was reading. Um, so, I mean, th this sounds a little bit familiar. Well, we have to agree on the fundamentals and on other things we can disagree. But in any case, uh, this matter is not a fundamental of the faith. If both men do this for God's sake and give him thanks, there is no great difference between the men. 
Yet even in this, St. Paul is aiming a correction at the Judaizers. For, of course, if you think about it, I mean, even reading this, it sounds a little funny. You, you give thanks before you eat something, but you don't generally sit down and ask a blessing before you don't eat a meal. Okay. So the way he says it, it's kind of like, well, but you, you don't like to sit down and give thanks for that meal you're about not to eat. And why are you not eating it? Because you're holding to the law. Okay, so once again, he's saying that this holding to the law is, is not leading to the same good things that grace does. And St. John points out again, when St. Paul writes to the Galatians, he says of people like this, they've fallen from grace. It's very strong language. But here he forbears because it's not time for that rebuke. Going on to verses seven and eight. For none of us lives to himself and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Um, So uh, St. John again sees in this a correction of the weaker, because if they're living unto the law, they're not living unto Christ. And yet also it holds back the vehement rebukes of the stronger. Because when he says none of us lives to himself, that means we are not free. We have a master and that master desires that we all live. In fact, he has a greater concern for our living than we do. And he counts our death a greater loss than we count it ourselves. For if we die, meaning if we die to the faith, we've died to him. So this loving master is going to set the weak right in due time. And so the stronger don't need to hurry up and do the job now. And uh, in, in St. John, I found that a really striking comment. You know, because generally speaking, I'm fairly concerned about whether I live or die and what, you know, my eternal state might be. And the idea that actually the Lord is more concerned about it than I am. And that, you know, he, he places greater, has greater concern for my life or death than I have for it myself. That was, that was uh, kind of gripping. So going on, verse nine, for to this end Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. And St. John sort of continues that idea of what extreme depths of love God has for us and all and what he has done for us. That I, I thought he said this so beautifully, I wanted to read it. And once again, this is one of my attempts to paraphrase the sort of clunky translation that uh, we're working from. Um, and, and let me explain something you're going to see in here. Of course, in St. John's time, slavery was still practiced within the empire, even though uh, Christianity had been legal for some time. Um, I suppose maybe by this point, it had recently become sort of the religion of the empire. But 
you know, lots of pagans were still around and evidently Christians were still having slaves. And so slavery was still a common part of everyday life. And what St. John is going to draw on here is that slaves were expensive. And if you went out and bought a slave, that represented quite an expense on your part. And you were not going to treat him with contempt. You were not going to despise him because that's like throwing away your money. Okay. So understand that that idea is going to lie behind some of what he says in this passage. So here I'm going to quote in the sense of paraphrasing his comments in verse nine. And so let us at least convince you that he, that is God, is concerned for our salvation. For if he did not have this great care for us, what need would there be of the incarnation? He then who has shown so much anxiety about our becoming his as to take the form of a servant and to die, will he despise us after we have become his? This cannot be so, assuredly it cannot, nor would he choose to waste so many pains. For to this end, he says, that as Paul says, he, Christ, also died. As if someone were to say, so-and-so will not have the heart to despise his servant, for he doesn't want to throw away his money. For indeed, we are not so much in love with money as God is with our salvation. Thus, it was not his money, but his own blood that he gave as bail for us. And for this reason, he would not have the heart to give those up for whom he had paid so great a price. See too how he shows that his power is unspeakable. For he says, to this end, he both died and rose and lived again, that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. And above, he said, for whether we live or die, we are his. See what a wide extended mastery, that is, how wide is his reach as the master of, of the slaves. See what unconquerable might. See what exact providence over us. For do not tell me he means of the living. He even takes care for the departed. But if he cares for the departed, it is quite plain that he takes care of the living also. For he has not omitted any point from being our master, making out for himself greater claims than masters of slaves do, and especially in order to take care of us. For a man puts down money, and because of this, he strongly holds on to his own slave. But God himself paid his own death as the price, and he is not likely to count valueless the salvation of one whom he purchased at so great a price, and whom he became master of with so much anxiety and trouble. St. Paul says this to make the Judaizer abashed and to persuade him to consider the greatness of the benefit he has received, and how when he was dead he came to be alive, and how there was nothing that he gained from the law, and how that it would be to the last degree unfeeling to leave him, Christ, who had shown him so much care, and to run away back to the law. And I take it that he means the way a slave might run away from a good master to go back to a bad one. So I thought a very striking passage. Um, so if there are no comments or questions or whatever, we will continue on. Verse 10, but why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? 
for we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. He says, now, again, this seems to set both groups on the same level, but again, it aims at the weaker. First, the word brother is there to set aside all argument. These two groups should not be arguing with each other. They are brothers. But secondly, this mention of the judgment is there to put the Judaizer in fear, the weaker brother, lest he be found trusting in the law rather than in Christ, because it's, of course, the judgment seat of Christ. And then verses 11 and 12. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. Um, so he says now that the apostle does not simply say each of us will worship God, but everyone will confess. That is, we will make a confession. We will give an account of ourselves, which I, I think somehow I never quite read that uh, Old Testament quote in verse 11 that way. Every tongue shall confess. I'm sort of thinking of, you know, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But the way St. John reads this, that this confession is we will confess giving an, an account of ourselves to God. Um, and he says, again, this aims at the Judaizer to put him in fear of causing a schism or a division within the church uh, or abandoning grace and fleeing back to the law. For it is not the law that's going to demand an account, but Christ who will. In verse 13, therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. And St. John says, now this really does apply to both groups. He says, both of you will face great punishment if you give offense to the others, whether by rebuking, whether the stronger rebuking the, the, uh, the weaker unseasonably and not accommodating their weakness, or the weaker if they are rebuked and stumble in the faith because of this. So that finishes our first section. Maybe we can pause a second for any ruminations, meditations, considerations, interrogations you might want to bring in at this point. I guess I should be here to that summarize on. that in two sentences. What is the basic takeaway that Chrysostom sees going on in Paul? Is it verse 12, 11, 12, and 13? <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's that um, you know Paul pastorally wants to correct those who are still holding to the law, along with their faith in Christ. Yet right. wants to maintain peace within the body by tempering the corrections that the more mature give to the weaker. Right. But he doesn't just come out right and say that. Right. He doesn't establish who's the stronger or the weaker. Right. But, but I'm wondering now, does he ever even use the term stronger? Or is that always simply implied? 
Yeah. That's interesting. You know, certainly in the first couple of verses, receive one who is weak. He doesn't say who's supposed to receive, just receive one who is weak. Right. Verse two, one believes he may eat all. The weak eats only vegetables. And, you know, when I use the word stronger and weaker in my notes here, I fully believe that the word stronger actually appeared in this passage. And I'm starting to think maybe it actually doesn't. He's just that good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Which really does make me wonder if this is exactly what St. John sees everywhere that, you know, now I see it one time. It's like the Apostle Paul is saying a great deal without putting it in so many words. And at least many among his audience would have filled in all those blanks, even not even realizing they were doing it, perhaps. Right. But he keeps directing it as he ends it, right, with every knee is going to actually bow before the Lord. Yes. We're all weak. <laughs> <laughs> yes. We all need to be accepted and not judged by someone else. Right. Somebody is stronger than the strong. Right. Yeah, I'm, as I ruminate on this as we proceed, I, my mind goes wandering off to, this is a church. This is a church, this is not a business. This is not the military. This is where people treat different one another more like a family, uh, brothers. Uh, we, we have these aims. We, we all want to be achievers, but not in the not in the commercial or the military sense. And I, I sometimes wonder, do we really understand church? Or is, there, or is our society such that um, we're so contaminated in, in some ways, certain ways, that it's difficult for understand to understand that this is church and this is this is where it, it helps to remember that uh, John Chrysostom is this, as you, I think you said a while ago, this is, we're all, yes, we're all going to answer to Christ. So even though we may have our own little order of business here, uh, ultimately we all, it's Christ. That's why we're all here. He's the head of our church. Um, yeah, just all, all of this is causing me to think once again, uh, what church is and, and who we are supposed to be in that kind of a setting. It's, it's perplexing but, and, and humbling, but, but encouraging too. That's my rumination. Thank you. Yeah. Well, and I'm thinking, you know, um, I mean, even as you say that, how differently this looks to me now having been in 
the church for a while in the Orthodox Church compared to my evangelical days, because I think I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, it's like, you know, you get to know people and sometimes you think you've got some peculiar views and your life is kind of disorderly. I wonder if I should be doing something about that. This might be a problem. And, um, you know, which is quite a plausible thing within evangelical life. But, um, you know, the first thing I observe within, you know, within the church being Orthodox is, well, you go up to the cup just like I do. The Lord's receiving you just like he receives me. Probably not my place to be too concerned about it. Um, I mean, not, not to neglect my brother, but, you know, not, not to say, hey, there's a problem here. I need to set you straight. And it's like, and if there is a real problem, we have a presbyter, we have a priest who, you know, knows whether there's something that needs to be done about that. I can just relax and get on with trying to care for and love my brother. So I, I found, a, you know, you're saying, is this more of a picture of what church should be? I, I think I've certainly found that it's, there's sort of a structure that makes that easier within orthodoxy for me than I found it as, you know, in my evangelical past. Yeah, I remember growing up in the Church of Christ, we did a lot of, uh, we actually had church discipline but it was very interesting. <laughs> it almost ended up like the infamous, you know, people talk about um, Amish shunning. It practically went that far because it would take Paul and certain verses that he would say and then not really think about all of the ways in which one would need to think about it. Um, like, do not even eat with such a one, you know, the, these kind of, and so <laughs> basically ended up in a kind of shaming process where you basically, you get cut off because something happened. And then people, unless until you come back and repent, if, if you are following the letter of what I grew up in, like, then you would not even talk to a per that person if you saw them out, like out and about, mm -hmm. which is a, which I understand what they were trying to do, but I feel like what, what I encountered in Orthodoxy is kind of what you encountered was those things, like there is a kind of disfellowship that happens that has to do with the cup and the and communion with penances, et cetera. And if there's an extreme case where somebody is believed to be a wolf or something, the priest can basically say, you're not welcome here. Um, and usually the bishop gets involved on something like that, but uh, it was not everybody in the community having to decide. Now, I mean, that can always go haywire the other direction too, right? But I, I felt like it, it, there was some ways in which to do some church discipline that does not completely put somebody outside where they were in such, like a radical shame as to try to get them to get back. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so I just saw that go bad multiple times. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Growing. Now it could go it could go pear-shaped uh in orthodox circles too, but <laughs> I felt like 
I what I've seen is usually it's handled better. Mm -hmm. Well, and you know, I think the other side of that is is to go to confession, and to find that one's not barred from the cup based on the things one has confessed. Right. Well, it depends. <laughs> Reed, right. It depends. <laughs> no, I mean, I, no, I'm sure not that it can't happen, but, um, but that uh, you know, if it's done, it's not. It is done for the sense of the salvation of the person to wake them up, or right. to get like there. There are penances that occur, but they need to be done out of freedom and with the salvation of the person in mind. So there's all sorts of different ways that occurs, but. Mm -hmm. And just, you know, to go and, and have the absolution spoken and it's like, wow, you come away with a greater sense of the graciousness of God. Yeah, because you, if you're doing it right, you're completely uh, naked. <laughs> mm-hmm. Any other thoughts before we press on? So this law of love. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, so um, since uh, Father Daniel read earlier, Lewis, would you mind reading 14 through the end? Yes. Let me move, reposition myself here. I'm, I'm, I'm putting things. I'm going to read off the screen. Uh, I need to get closer to the screen so I can read this. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, we're looking at it at this on a big screen instead of my instead of my oh Liz is watching with me. So what's what verses do you want me to read? It's uh, starting at 14, 14 through the end of the chapter. Okay. I know and and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet, if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore. Let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or it is offended or is offended or is made weak. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself and what he approves. For he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith. For whatever is not from faith is sin. Thank you very much. So as St. John reads the apostle here in verse 14, he understands that St. Paul is now beginning to elaborate on some of the doctrine of this matter. You know, he's first of all given his pastoral instructions for the welfare of the body, but now he begins to talk about the doctrine of this. But he does it very gently. 
out of consideration for the weaker brother. So he doesn't begin to warn him of possible punishment for holding to the law instead of Christ. Rather, he tries to allay his fears on this matter of observing the law by explaining, well, nothing is unclean. And the point here is that nothing is by nature unclean. And of course, we can easily think of like Peter and the, his dream of the sheet being handed down from heaven uh, or of you know, what our Lord said about foods as well. You know, nothing is by nature unclean. It all depends on the spirit of the man who uses, who uses the things. If he thinks that a thing is unclean, then it is, but only for himself. And so, you know, St. John says, well, why doesn't the apostle just correct him about this then? And the answer is, well, because St. Paul doesn't want to grieve the man who has these scruples about the matter. And so verse 15, um, the apostle goes on even a little farther. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. So uh, the way St. John reads this is that the apostle saying, rather than correcting your brother on this matter, even though the matter is important, Saint, uh, sorry, I, I misread that. St. Paul, rather than correcting the weaker brother on this matter, even though it's important, he seeks to win the brother over by a readiness to yield and by charity. Okay, this matter is important, you know, not continuing to observe the law, but it's not nearly as important as the danger of overwhelming your brother with grief. Simple charity can accomplish a great deal to win the, your brother over, and so it's better, if need be, to condescend to your brother's weakness and to join him in it than to distress him by your correction. It says, indeed, Christ became a slave for your brother. Will you not despise food for his sake? You know, it's like Christ, you know, our God became a slave for the sake of your brother. Can't you at least give up some kind of food that you enjoy for the sake of your brother? And what, if, you know, you think, well, what if my brother's not won over by this? And, and St. John's comment is, well, Christ became a slave for everyone, even though he knew he would not gain everyone by doing it. Um, and so then verses 16 and 17, therefore do not let your good be spoken of as evil for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And uh, what St. John understands here is when he says of good, let not your good uh, be spoken of as evil. He's saying, well, that your good might mean your faith, which I think he means not your Christian faith in Christ, but your strength of faith about eating meats or your hope of reward for having the faith to eat meats or you know the perfection of your religious state he says if by those things you're causing quarrels and fights and schisms within the body then the outsiders people outside the church are going to speak evil of what's happening in the church and so evil will be the result of your 
your faith, your perfection, your good, rather than good coming from it. And going on in verse 18, so it says, for he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. And St. John says, they're not going to admire you so much for your perfect state as they will for the peace and the, the concord, the amity, the love of the people within the church. For this is a goodly thing, peace and, and, and amity, that everyone benefits from, but that, you know, you're sort of perfection about being bold enough to eat meats, no one's going to benefit from. So verse 19, therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. And he says, again, this applies, um, you know, to the one that he may be peaceable toward the other, one group to that they may be peaceable. It applies to the other that they may not destroy their, their brothers. And yet, you know, the, the phrase one another means this applies to everyone. And it's very hard to build each other up if we're not at peace. So do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. So in verse 20, when he talks about the work of God, he understands this to mean the salvation of your brother. It is God's work to save him. And so to the stronger, he's saying, now, this is a place to be fearful because if you eat your, your meat and by that are pubbling uh, your brother, you're accomplishing the very opposite of what you want to do. For, you know, you're, you're destroying your brother whom God is working to save. And you're, not, you're doing this not for any great reason, but for meat. You know, it's phrasing there, don't destroy your brother uh, for the sake of food. It's like, you know, you should see which is more important here. Um, but at the same time, he sees that since the apostle has been speaking so much to protect the weaker brother, now he needs to make the doctrine a point that now, the weaker brother, you are still weaker. You want to grow out of that. So he says, all things are pure, um, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. So he's saying, now look, if you eat with a bad conscience, well, not if you do, the stronger brother, but if you force, if you push the weaker brother to eat with a bad conscience, you don't gain anything by that. Because even though the eating itself doesn't make him unclean, doing it with the wrong intention does. And so if you push him to sort of on the doctrinal point, everything is legitimate to eat, and yet he's violating his conscience, you haven't gained anything. In fact, you're making things worse. And he says, for thinking a thing is unclean is not so bad as eating it when you think it's unclean. And so he says, as long as you haven't persuaded him of the truth of, you know, your, your greater faith, then don't try to force him to do what you do. Verse 21, it is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor to do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. 
And St. John says again, he requires the greater alternative that not only should you not force your weaker brother to eat meat, but you should condescend to him. You should join him in not eating meat. Um, you know, out of love for him. And he points out that the Apostle Paul often did the same sort of thing, such as when he had uh, Timothy circumcised or when he had his hair shaved off to um, fulfill you know, one of the Jewish rituals or he joined in the Jewish sacrifice. These are all from the book of Acts. Um, and he doesn't give it as a command, but sort of as an observation, a sentiment. It's, it's better not to do these things than to cause your brother to stumble. And so once again, you know, Christ came from heaven. He suffered so much for us. He showed us such love. Can't you do this little thing out of love for your brother? So verse 22, do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. And once again here, when he says faith, he doesn't mean our faith in Christ, the faith in which we hope for eternal life, our faith in the gospel. He means your stronger faith on this particular point of eating meats. Because he says, now, elsewhere, the Apostle Paul has said, now, you know, you've got to confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Um, Whoever denies me before men, him I will deny, says our Lord. It's like that faith we don't obscure, we don't hide. But your faith about whether you can eat pork or whether you can eat meat, uh, just have that between yourself and God. Don't look to have other men approving you. Let your own conscience approve you. Um, and then finally, uh, verse 23, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he do does not eat from faith or whatever is not from faith is sin. Um, and he says once again, um, again, it's to exhort him to spare the weaker, to have the stronger spare the weaker for, um, he says, what good is it if he eats in doubt and condemns himself? For I approve of him, those who eats and um, does it without doubting. Um, And so, you know, don't push him to eat until he can do it with a good conscience. And again, he says, now, why is it he can, he's condemned if he eats with a bad conscience? It's not because of the food itself. It's because of his conscience. It's because he's not acting in faith. And so, uh, you know, he shows that there's a lot of harm in compelling men um, to do what you think is right rather than persuading them to decide for themselves it really is right. So that sort of reaches the end and I will throw open the floor for questions, comments or whatever else. I think what how you started at the beginning in framing this chapter, which kind of has been the a repeat theme as we've gone through Romans, is Chrysostom reading Paul as a pastor. 
and I mean, this might be kind of redundant, kind of a, a cruciform pastor that everything is put through the cross mm-hmm. and through the love of Jesus Christ, which is kind of maybe uh, assumed, but I think his basic take home is you need to pour yourself out like our Lord did. Mm-hmm. Your your brother is more important than some of your opinions. Mm-hmm. This is a very uh, timely and pertinent <laughs> chapter. Wait, does does Chrysostom say anywhere talk anything beyond food? Does he extrapolate to other things that he would parallel at his time that he would consider this to be equal to? Um, I have not gone on and read the the rest of either because it's in two homilies that he covers this. Right. Um, and I haven't read the part in which he makes application of it. So he may okay. very well, but I haven't read those parts i'm always short on time right i'd just be interested in because then then you get into this question of okay what constitutes for us a food issue right right i don't know well, well and i mean <laughs> that, that's a hard question and i mean you know that to me is sort of a challenge here because you know St. John sees the apostle looking at this and making an apostolic judgment. Right. This matter is important, but this is not the right time to address it. And mostly what that makes me think is, boy, there probably are lots of things that I'm not ready to address that I might imagine that I am. Um, You know, and again, within the church, I, I can sometimes defer that more easily thinking, okay, we have priests and we have bishops to sort these matters out. It's fine for me to have opinions and to discuss them pleasantly with my fellow believers. And I probably don't need to try to make any of them dogmas. Well, I wish that were the case, but even in the Orthodox world, this is definitely a thing. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's when humans gather. (laughs) (laughs) Especially in the presence of the internet. Yes. And especially about things of faith. There's something about religion generally that just kind of brings up all sorts of craziness. Mm -hmm. That's why I like one of the uh, maxims of Father Thomas Hopko is try to be a normal human being. It's actually pretty hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, my sister, anytime I would use the word normal, almost anytime I would use the word normal, she would inter- interject, and what is normal? <laughs> yeah. And what's Fair. normal? Yeah, well, what's normal when I was. Yes, right. In high school, yeah, my goodness. Changed quite a bit. I think what he meant was don't become like unapproachable or 
you know, weird because of religion. Does that make sense? You should still be a, a, a human being that people that loves that, you know, all of that. Cause I, you, you can see where religion for, and I'm not, obviously I think Christian, <laughs> but it can become an idolatry. It can become an excuse to major in all sorts of minor things and lose the whole scope of things. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought we love that. There's a lot of stuff in orthodoxy <laughs> that you can get lost in. And on the I other mean, side, of but... yeah, you have people coming to you though, Father Daniel, who who have decided who you are and what you should be and how you should act. And so I, I do understand the normality, but um, when someone coming in from a very uh, unique setting that is far afield from the life. Oh yeah, I, I, I don't mean capitulation to the world. I mean your lack of capitulation to the world. Uh, you should stand out from the world because you're following Jesus Christ, not because you've decided that Byzantine, a certain form of Byzantine iconography, is the only form of iconography you should ever find in a church. And if you don't, then you're going to get upset about it. And you may even say you're going to leave because it's not pure enough. That's a random, but these are the kind of things that like, wherever the, like Christian, like orthodoxy can become something that's not about the transformation of the self in opposition to the powers of principalities, the way the world is, but some kind of like we're playing Dungeons and Dragons or something. <laughs> Or some kind, you know, like collecting, like collectibles, right? Like I've got all of the Star Wars figurines on my, I don't, but I'm just saying like on my shelf at home. So I'm gonna, <laughs> now I'm going to do all this. And it's like, this is not the point. Mm -hmm. Your brother, you know, our Lord died for him, not for you to have, for all of your opinions about what the music should be like or whatever to be game changers or like cause chaos or division and it happens thank god we did not have that at st anne's this past year thank god because it happened at other parishes mm. well and i can I see think... i can see a bit debates about the masks in the past year falling into some of these categories mm -hmm. and everybody thinking they're right uh and you have to be in, like how to for the sake of your brother you need to figure it out oh that's a good that's a good present day situation wow. i didn't want to go there but <laughs> this is always <laughs> what i had in mind in the back of my head um, and trying yeah. to like say come on you you may have very strong opinions on one on on you know one side of things and others will have strong opinions and both will say they've done the homework and all this stuff and i I, we can't split our church because, you know, we've got to, we got to, thankfully, that's why the bishop comes in and says, this is what we're doing. I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, Isn't that lovely? But I mean, yes. I, think it's, Go ahead, know, I think it's a good point that, you know, as Christians, we understand in most times and places, we are going to 
believe and do some things that are going to look odd and you know be troublesome to the world around us and maybe especially living in a time that has uh, drifted into some very strange directions as our culture has and so we will unavoidably look really odd at times in ways that people are going to care about and yet we don't want to as you say take sort of trivialities and trappings of the faith and make them into points to be odd over and sometimes for me at least it's it's a little hard to tell the difference and I think of what you've written about in the in your blog about you know there's this is it a virtue of discernment um, which is tremendously important and you know not necessarily easy to come by nor in much demand and um, you know th that's something that I, I long to develop something of yeah it's there's a reason why the fathers laud discernment and talk about how much of a grace it is to to actually be given that gift. And it's not just, you know, the, something you can put in your CV or something that you've acquired because you got the certificate or something. Right. <laughs> um, and I can see, I can see, like Paul is obviously ex showing incredible discernment and how in what Chrysostom is picking up and just the rhetoric and how he has framed this so as to not lose someone unnecessarily because of something he said, that he doesn't become a stumbling block, but that he's phrased it in such a way that the focus is on Jesus, but it doesn't poo-poo or, you know, overreact or overcorrect in a situation where there it's it's a tenuous and tight or like you know volatile situation that he's able to kind of diffuse things by turning the focus to how do you actually relate to these things and what would our lord do in this situation to take a different point of view and say you need to think about it from this point of view because mm -hmm. we all want to be right <laughs> right <laughs> that might not be for the sake of the body of christ well and i also think of father thomas hopko's maxim about don't try to persuade anyone of anything and it seems like well if i can take that viewpoint it will save me from first of all a lot of mistakes but secondly you know doing a certain amount of harm yeah i, I remember when i was I would say in my, I don't know what, I, I know I have to leave the Church of Christ, but I don't know where I'm going yet phase. And I had a lot of Church of Christ friends, but I basically did not, I would, I did not make them privy to what I was doing. Because I, because I saw like one friend, I kind of talked to them a little bit, but it was one of those things where I felt like, well, it really rocked his boat in a way that I didn't want to, you know, uh, torpedo his faith by trying to put things on or like go the things that I was trying to process through for them to then be overwhelmed because they wouldn't even know what to do. So there's no, I couldn't convince anyone of things that I had come to through a whole host of things in my life that you can't create recreate those things for everybody, right? Mm -hmm. That's what's hard about teaching, as you know, Reed. <laughs> how, how do I figure out where somebody is and how I can connect the dots? 
to allow them to because I don't know what presuppositions are there. Mm -hmm. So I, I think Paul does an incredible job of not only rhetor rhetoric, but teaching. I mean, that's a hard thing to do even in mass, but to do it in something like this, where it's people's lives and it's the church and spiritual truth, it's like, yep, that's impressive. Yeah, Lord have mercy. <laughs> hmm. Well, is there any other comments or anything we would need to discuss on this chapter? Let me just mention one thing that might confuse some people. If you're reading along in the, um, you know, the Nicene and post-Nicene fathers and reading St. John's homilies, you'll see that his next homily begins on Romans chapter 14, verses 25 through 27 which is really interesting since those verses don't appear in the New King James Version of the Bible. And uh, if you read them and look around a little, you will discover that those verses that he has as coming at the end of chapter 14, of course, I don't think he had chapter markings, appear in most of our Bibles at the end of chapter 16. Um, and I remember this from going through this some years ago that evidently some of the manuscripts and some of the fathers did place this doxology at the end of chapter 14 rather than where we typically see it at the end of chapter 16. So just lest anyone is confused about where I plan to start next week, that's where it is. All right. And with that, uh, All right. anything else for the good of the gathering we have here? We'd always say that at the end of uh, troop meetings and Boy Scouts. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. Christ is risen, everyone. Indeed, he is risen.